Was Jesus actually born on December 25th? Was Christ born on Christmas? We're going to talk about the miraculous birth of Christ. It seems like a pretty commonsensical answer, but we'll get to it. This is the Kennedy Report. Welcome. Was Jesus born on December 25th? Well, as I said, it seems pretty simple, and ultimately it is, but there is doubt that has been cast by so-called modern scholarship. <clears throat> With all things in modern religion or modern society in general, Modernists and, well, morons have muddled a very simple truth. There is an asinine school of biblical scholarship and theology that seems to be the normal way of spreading for even what are considered good theologians and good schools. You see it everywhere. I mean, you can go to so-called good Catholic universities and you'll say, well, so-and-so was cast out on this theory and we think Jesus was born in the spring or whatever. We'll go over it. Now, since we're dealing with the Gospels, and primarily the Gospel of Luke for this demonstration, I think it's fitting for us to take a good look at the Gospels. How do we trust them? What's our basis for that? We trust through the eyes of faith that they're inspired by the Holy Ghost, but it is a teaching of our church and through all of tradition that it's not just as if the Bible is correct on specifically religious things. The Bible is just correct. It could be that there could be symbolism, or it could be that there could be... Uh, non-historical facts that speak, you know, the book of Revelation, where you have visions and things like that that take place in some sort of mystical capacity. But the Bible, when it talks about history, is historical. Imagine that. One of the greatest tragedies of our current age is that we've lost all manner of common sense. Things that used to be obvious are now considered primitive or outdated. Nowhere is this mentality more pronounced than with biblical scholarship. In recent articles that I've done on the Fatima Center, which you can check out, we've dealt with a lot of these things. I have a series from earlier this year talking about uh, the basic catechism on the Bible in general, so I suggest reading there a little bit more for some information. The English Catholic author G.K. Chesterton, who I've spoken of before, he's famous for his expression, the democracy of the dead, and we're not talking about the recent election. Uh, what he means by that is tradition. Uh, not without wit, he declares that true democracy would include a say for your ancestors. This is part of the Ten Commandments. We honor our father and our mother. That means we honor our forefathers as well. This is one of the reasons why we actually have a good sense of confidence in sacred tradition in the church, and the Bible is actually a part of sacred tradition. In fact, little known fact to a lot of Catholics, but the Catechism tells us, and various teachings as well, that the Bible is part of our tradition. So anything that's part of sacred tradition holds weight like the Bible holds weight. The Bible itself was not completed on the day of Christ's ascension. Therefore, the church pre-exists the final canon of the Bible. Therefore, we cannot dispense with the traditions because to do so would be to dispense with the Bible. You should tell that to any so-called Bible-alone Christian. As I have discussed before on the website, but for those who haven't read it, there is a commission called the Pontifical Biblical Commission that has provided definitive answers. And little note on the Pontifical Biblical Commission, I did talk about it in a series on evolutionism and creationism that we talked about over the summer. But the Pontifical Biblical Commission, at the time that it was instantiated and then it was changed after that, but all the rulings from before the Second Vatican Council have not been abrogated and they speak as the definitive answer on matters pertaining to sacred tradition with regards to the Bible. Well, at the turn of the 20th century, there was an influx of erroneous Protestant-based biblical criticism in academia. Among other things, the gospel authorship, 
the authorship of the four Gospels was called into question, and the dating, and the, well, basically everything. I mean, they wanted to start from scratch for some reason. One of the most absurd, and I mean this, absurd I don't think is a strong enough word, one of the most absurd hypotheses is called the Q source theory. Uh, in fact, in my most recent book that I wrote uh, called Family Be Damned, it's uh, based on the family, I actually call one of the devils in that book Q. For those who understand biblical stuff, it's sort of inside baseball. But in any case, the Q source theory, the proponents of this hypothesis, this idea, if you want to call it that, they suggest that there is some sort of lost gospel. You see, the gospels, the three canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they contain so much in common that they must be in the minds of these scholars, if you want to call them that. Apparently, these Gospels must be based on some sort of lost Gospel, of which we have no evidence, but that accounts for the fact that they are similar. It couldn't just be that they all saw the same thing or wrote down the same story. It has to be based on something that no one's ever seen and there's no evidence for to explain something that otherwise is pretty simple. I think to be a modern scholar means to educate yourself out of common sense. The reason that the Gospels are, that they share so much in common is because the authors wrote things down. Why don't you just imagine a scene for a second. Imagine, you know, you were at a, you know, in a police station and there was a bunch of people brought in for questioning. And they all had similar, but a little bit different, but same stories. I don't think they would say, listen guys, there's no way all these witnesses that are being <coughs> interrogated separately, there's no way that they're all telling the same story because they actually know the story. There has to be some lost witness that told them all how to think, and there's some grand conspiracy behind it. It is amazing that people are called conspiracy theorists today when we know that so many in modern scholarship really are the ones with these weird ideas. But in any case, concerning the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the Pontifical Biblical Commission says that we, are, we don't even have to have any doubt whatsoever about the authorship of Matthew, let alone the idea that it should be applied to the Q source. The same thing holds true of Mark. Mark was essentially the gospel according to St. Peter. Mark is one of the 72 disciples that followed the 12 apostles, Peter being the first pope. I think he's a pretty trustworthy source. St. Luke is just the same. St. Luke discipled St. Paul. We know that for sure. There's evidence that he might have been with St. Peter at times as well. And I want you to think about um, how St. Luke's gospel actually starts. He says the following. He says, according as they have delivered them unto us, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having diligently attained to all things from the beginning, to write to thee in order. So, St. Luke is telling us that he's done his research, he's talked to witnesses, and he's put everything in order. St. Luke was also a physician at the time, which actually means he was educated in the classic Greek academies. Now, the scholars among us might say, well, of course he'd say that. That's just part of his conspiracy, but we only have so much time for so many wacky theories in one episode. But not only should we trust St. Luke because he was guided by the Holy Ghost and because he tells us how he did his work, but we should also trust him because of what he tells us in the second chapter of his gospel. After he talks about the nativity and the visitation, he says that Mary, quote-unquote, kept all these words in her heart. This is an expression. This means that what he is relating to us was relayed to him by the Blessed Virgin Mary. Immaculate conception, virginal mother, mother most pure. Her mind is perfect. She is without sin. She doesn't tell lies. Mary knows how things happen, and she told St. Luke. So in a way, we might even say that St. Luke's gospel is something like the gospel according to the memories of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
I think she's a good source. The Holy Gospel, according to St. John, is also included in the replies of the Pontifical Biblical Commission. You can read those things for yourself. I recommend you go to our website. Modern scholars, once again, demonstrate their loss of common sense when they expect us to believe Protestant academics living in the mid-19th century in ivory towers that somehow they have a better knowledge than all the church fathers, all the saints, all the apostles, everyone that lived before them. It's just nonsense. So, we can trust the Gospels without any issue, not just on spiritual and religious things, so-called, but also on matters of history. Unfortunately, there is a prevailing narrative amongst modern scholarship for the Gospels, and the idea is that Christ was born in the spring, and that the December date is wrong. Now, the idea that the December date is wrong is based basically off of two things. One is the idea that there's some sort of pagan ritual, and there were pagan rituals at all times of the year, but there were pagan rituals around the birth of Christ, which we'll go over. And another one is that there couldn't have been sheep in the pasture at that time of year, because apparently sheep don't go out to the pasture in December. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, the Holy Land isn't in Northern Europe. Well, you might be right. They have a different grazing season. It's actually quite an easy example, but you can see how far these things go in modern scholarship. The evidence is overwhelming that Christ was born in late December, so let us deal quickly with these couple objections. As I said, the idea that he was born in the spring and he couldn't have been born in the December because when it mentions sheep in the pasture with the shepherds, that, that's somehow not possible. No. Anyone who's been to the Mediterranean knows that the temperature there is temperate, it is moderate. Sheep and livestock spend most of the year outside. That includes in December, especially in a place that's kind of dry like the Holy Land. You're not going to have the same temperatures you have in Northern Europe. And most of these Bible heresies are from Northern European Protestant countries, and they're sort of applying their geography on other people. Now, there do exist a series of pagan objections, but essentially they all are centered around this idea of the sort of winter solstice equinox traditions and the various cults of the gods that they had for these various dates, you know. But the only problem is that the winter equinox is actually on December 21st. So the idea that Christ would replace a winter equinox festival and not be on the day of that doesn't seem like a very good replacement. Jesus is born on December 25th, as we'll see. Some stretch the idea and they say, well, the Christians, they always do things in three, you know, Trinity and three days in the grave. And so therefore they stretched, okay, the 22nd, the 23rd, 24th, and that means Christ... Anyway, you can see it sort of starts becoming like a so-called conspiracy theory. They even try to give us this idea that because the 21st, I think, is the shortest day of the year, and days start to get longer after that, they say, well, Christ is the Son of God. It's actually a sun god. Well, the word for sun, and sun as in your son, doesn't rhyme in Latin or Greek, so that doesn't really work. But anyway, there is a pagan festival an ancient one, attributed to the unconquered sun. I believe Julian the Apostate, he sort of promoted this cult. And it does show up on or around December 25th. The only problem is, is that we only see this become popularized over two centuries later, after Jesus Christ. As with all things that are anti-Catholic, and Julian the Apostate was very anti-Catholic, he was quite the persecutor of Christians, these objections are from the devil. And the devil is a liar, and he flips things on their head. So the situation here is the reverse. We don't see Christians who took pagan holidays. We see pagans who took Christian holidays and tried to blame it on the other one. Now, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke to prove the actual date of December 25th. We've already got all of tradition, but now we're actually going to show in the scriptures. 
Now, what about the Gospel of Luke? Well, of course we trust the facts, but let's look at the dates. So, we won't go into all of the genealogies. Anyone who's read the Old Testament and parts of a couple books in the New Testament, you know that those genealogies are extensive. And admittedly, they are sometimes hard to get through pronouncing all the names and so forth. But there's a reason why they're included there is because they really are historical evidence. We're not going to go through them all. But suffice it to say, St. Zacharias, who is the husband of Elizabeth, the father of John the Baptist, he served in his priestly class in the priestly duties in the temple. He was from a line that served at certain times of the year, as they all did. When we put together the dating from historical records, we know that Zacharias was serving at this time of the year between September 22nd to about October 8th. Now, we know that St. Elizabeth conceived miraculously right after he served in the temple. Perhaps you remember this from one of the Gospels. If we go from the end of September, right, and we go nine months from then, we get to the end of June, which is the feast day of St. John the Baptist, which is June the 24th. From Luke's Gospel, we know that John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. You can read this in the account of St. Luke's Gospel, and it's quite clear. It talks about, you know, after three months had passed, and six months of this, and, and it's all in there. If you take into account that John was six months the elder of Christ, and that John was born on June 24th, you get to... December 24th, Christmas Eve. Imagine that. What does our tradition tell us? It tells us that Christ was born at midnight on December 24th slash 25th. It's almost as if the church has been correct the whole time. Now, we mentioned earlier how Luke relays to us the sacred history from the Virgin Mary. There's more to the birth of Jesus than just the dating, which we've easily shown. But you may have heard the following before. We say that the Virgin Mary remained a virgin before, during, and after her birth. That's kind of a peculiar statement if you think, what does it mean to be, okay, virgin before, virgin after, makes sense. What do we mean virgin during? Well, what we're referring to with the Virgin Mary, because this word virgin, of course, concerns the conjugal relationship between husband and wife, but it also applies to what is inviolate. This is why you say you have extra virgin olive oil, because the actual, um, you know, the fruits are used in a way that they remain inviolate. The integrity is not harmed on them. So this is why we're talking about that. So I'll explain. The perpetual virginity of Our Lady is a dogma of the Church. And we're going to see that Christ, according to tradition, was not actually born in the normal manner. Her perpetual virginity is a dogma, and it's part of the deposit of faith, which we have to assent to. The Church has always defined that Our Lady's perpetual virginity was before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. St. Thomas Aquinas writes that, and he says this in the Summa Theologica, he writes about the conception and virginal birth of Jesus, and he points to a verse in the Old Testament where it says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Both the conception and the birth are miraculous, with no natural explanation. The fathers and the medieval theologians continually lose the analogy of light passing through glass. And they said things like, just as light passes through glass without breaking it, so our Lord is born of the Virgin Mary without breaking the seal of her virginity. The definition of the Lateran Council in 649 AD states that in addition to conceiving Jesus without the seed of man, that she gives birth to him without any detriment to her virginity. Once again, it is strange to modern ears to think that birth would be part of virginity, but we're we're referring to not just the relations between husband and wife, but we're referring to the integrity of the whole person, of the Virgin Mary. 
The counsel, of course, goes on to say that her virginity remained inviolable even after his birth. Less than 50 years later, at the Council of Toledo in 693, the church teaches the doctrine very clearly. It says, And as the virgin acquired the modesty of virginity before conception, so also she experienced no loss of her integrity, for she conceived a virgin and gave birth a virgin, and her birth retained the uninterrupted modesty of an intact virgin. This obvious sense of this definition indicates that we're speaking about physical integrity, physical virginity. The fathers of the church are careful to treat this mystery with reverence and prudential mortification of the tongue, which is extremely important. Never do they speak about the physiology of the virginity in regard to Our Lady, because after all, she is the mother of God, and this is not a scientific or medical study. Notice the delicacy of St. Ambrose in the 4th century. and He says, Mary is the gate through which Christ entered the world when he was brought forth in the virginal birth. And the matter of his birth did not break the seal of virginity. We see it once again. Witness also St. Augustine's faith in the miraculous quality of the virgin. He says, That same power which brought the body of the risen Jesus through closed doors brought the body of the infant forth from the inviolate womb of the mother. We see biblical typology here. Christ passes miraculously from the womb, just like he passes miraculously after he's raised from the tomb. St. Gregory the Great in the 7th century makes it clear that the virgin birth is a miracle only comparable to the resurrection, and one in the face of which reason must give way to faith. It's amazing. That analogy that for me is the most powerful is it says that Christ passed through like light passing through glass. Light goes through glass, the whole of the light comes through, but the glass itself remains completely intact. This is a well-established doctrine and dogma of our church and tradition. And it's something that is amazing for us to consider as Christmas is just around the corner. In closing, we here at the Fatima Center wish you a Merry Christmas. And we hope that you can make it to Holy Mass. And if not, perhaps these videos and other things that we have done can provide you a little bit of edification in your faith and a little bit of comfort. If you like what you've seen, perhaps consider donating so that we can continue to bring you videos like this that help to strengthen you in our faith, but most importantly, that we can continue to spread the message of Our Lady of Fatima so that she may help to save souls. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.